Hello there. At last we will reveal ourselves to the Jedi. At last we will have revenge. Hello there. Welcome to a podcast about Star Wars Shatterpoint and the Star Wars universe. My name is Jesse Aiken. I'm joined by my co-host, Amon Kusro. How are you doing today, Amon? I'm doing very well, Jesse. Recently came back from a 10-day fiesta, if you will, in South America. I got married in Cartagena, Colombia, which was an amazing time. And it got very lucky, actually, because it rained right before and right after the wedding, but not during the two days where we had our wedding events, which was amazing. So I am now not only a Sith Lord, but a betrothed, married Sith Lord. That's right. I said in the last episode, when Amon wasn't here and we were filling in for Amon, I said, you're joining the ranks of the betrothed. Oh, did you? Ranks of the married men here. I did. Someone who's been married a decade now. That's the thing. It's an incredible thing. And uh, Amon and I have talked about a lot about this off mic in past conversations and recent conversations, but uh, marriage is something I'm very passionate about, Amon. And uh, monogamy in general, it's an incredible thing. People commit to that. So I'm very passionate about it. Yeah, I guess I would say that I agree since I did it. So (laughs) yeah, it's like I'm a married man and I'm ordained in my state to marry other people. And I've married various couples of different groups and backgrounds. And yeah, it's just an incredible thing. So I highly encourage it. It's it's your thing. If it's not your thing, it is what it is. So let me ask you this. Not the Jedi way. That was my next point, Jesse, was... I knew you were going to say... You do encourage attachment. Apparently so. I'm a Luke Jedi Academy. Yeah. Not a prequels era Jedi temple. I encourage this like fluid, more modern version of the Jedi where you can have attachments because they do better your life and make you a better centered, lawful person if you want to be a Jedi. And maybe the Republic didn't know that at the time. And some of the characters we're going to talk about today had some issues with that. Raffaella and I were watching Rebels because I was like, hey, I think I mentioned this on the pod, but if I haven't, she asked a lot of questions and I was like, look, we're going to watch Ahsoka. I don't want questions. So we're going to watch Rebels because we're going to make sure we both know what's happening. Rebels season five. Yeah, pretty much, honestly. And so we're on season four. And fun fact, I actually never finished season four. So I'm very excited to kind of, I know what happens because the internet, but I'm excited to see how it happens and some of the details. I would say Ezra is very attached to the ghost crew, and he's a great Jedi. So is Kanan. Kanan's got a girl. Kanan's the man. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a big Kanan fan here. Ezra's got some attachments that hold him back, and that's part of his interest as a character. He's got these moral dilemmas that pull him towards the dark side, per se, but also pull him back towards the light which lean on his attachments both ways. So very interesting with that character. Yeah. Raph was saying like, I feel like every episode is Ezra not listening to what everyone is telling him to do and then regretting it and getting everyone into trouble. And I was like, yeah, it's a kid's show. You do what you got to do as space Aladdin. A space Aladdin. I don't know if I like that. At least in season one, hundred percent. They literally call him street rat as he's stealing melons. That is fair. I didn't realize they called him so- street rat. They do, but, and he has, he has the blue middle parted shaggy hair, a lot of good, cool stuff going on with Ezra, but he really grows into this fully formed, almost Jedi Knight by the end. Yeah. I had no idea Ezra was a brown guy until I think you told me. And I was like, hell yeah. All about the brown boys. He's a Padawan that grows into a matured 
man by the end of the show, quite honestly. And he makes a lot of decisions that pretty important, honestly, in the Star Wars saga by the end of things, right? Yeah. So I'm really excited to see how they explore more of that in Ahsoka, potentially. No spoilers. Speaking of spoilers, we'll probably mention this as we get to the closer to the lore section, but I will reiterate, if you have not watched Clone Wars or Star Wars Rebels, the events that we're talking about today will cover those shows, and so there will be spoilers. So if you don't want to spoil any of that stuff, just keep in mind that you can fast forward through some of the lore stuff and then stick around for the gaming content, because some of the stuff is pretty big. Yes, yeah, it's, it's definitely big, but we also like, with our show, we're always going to do like big passes. We're not going to hit on all the minutia. So some of you I know are like, I'm not fully caught up, but I listen and that's fine. Right. Because you guys are going to like describe every plot detail, right? Because we're not, we're just going to do the big stuff. But yeah, today's got a lot of lore because we've got some characters that are pretty big in the Clone Wars, at least in their stories that they're living in. Which is pretty pretty cool, Amon. And I'm really excited to be back on the show today with you on the show, but also be back on the show in our normal format, our box episodes. I really enjoy them. I feel like listening to the lore, not only hearing your overarching summaries, but then also just sharing my thoughts and some of the little tidbits that I know as well. I really enjoy that. And then, of course, breaking down the cards like, I know it's reading a card and then talking about it, but I think we do it really well. And I'm really proud that we're able to have like great conversations surrounding it. I'm super proud that we can do it and we can create an evergreen resource, hopefully for the community now and the community of the future. That's our goal because we're not trying to make this like a meta-based conversation. We're trying to make this strictly around this box, right? And what this box brings to you as a player and your teams and what you can gather from this. Even if you don't play Republic or Jedi, you can listen to this episode, hopefully, and glean some experience against them. Also some enjoyment hopefully learning about the lore and the strategy of these teams before we go right back to a dark side box. What a dark side box. There's some big ones coming up. hundred percent. hundred percent. Yeah. But Amon, before we get into lore or strategy of anything today, we have a lot of people to thank and a lot of important things to discuss. Absolutely. We have a ton. Hello there is supported by our patrons. Our patrons support hello there at patreon.com slash hello there cast. If you enjoy the show, consider supporting us and joining our Discord community. We now take this time to thank all of our patrons for their support. And we got a lot, very thankfully, and we're very excited to talk about all of these patrons that we've had. If you didn't hear your name last episode, it's because Amon wasn't here, and I wanted to wait till we had the full list. If you're waiting last episode to hear your name, you're going to hear it now. Absolutely. And this is one of my favorite parts, is being able to thank everyone for supporting us, and so... Sure. We'll start at the Padawan slash Acolyte level. And so we have James, Justin, Philip, Cornwolf, Kylie, Joshua, Price, Perpetually Plain, and Ryan Taylor. We thank you so much for your support. Thank you, Padawans. And now we're going to bump up to the Jedi Knight Sith Warrior tier. And we're going to thank Chaz, Casper, Kurt, Adam, Chris, Ashley, Ryan, Zeke, Pierre, Paul, and Alex. Thank you. Thank you so much. And then we did get a donation as well from Dion. So thank you so much. Thank you, Dion. Amazing. Amazing. A lot of patrons. 
I came back from the trip and then logged in to just see how things were going and blown away by the level of support that we're getting on this show. And it just keeps us going. So thank you. 100%. A couple of weeks of us not talking about patrons and then we got a list like this. What else could you say, really? And continuing with our patrons and this private Discord community that's incredible. If you want to get access to that, check out the Patreon. And you can get in and just get right into our Discord community. And these people have chosen to do that. But of course, we got to thank our producers right now, Amon, because our producers really make the show happen. They're really choosing to help us pay our bills, help us put into financial future endeavors. And they are here and they are proud. And we have to thank Jedi Survivor Rusty, Jedi Rich, and Bounty Hunter Brady. I dig it, man. I love that. And I really appreciate Rusty, Rich, and Brady for their support. And 100%. talking about those future endeavors, man, like we've got some stuff in the works. We do. Yeah. And like to be fully transparent, I'm on and I talk about this on the show a lot, but we spend a lot of money off the show to increase the production, increase the sound levels. We pay for monthly software. We pay for subscriptions for our feed and other things. So you guys are making this happen straight up and making the quality of the show be what it is. But of course, there is the ultimate supporter. That's right. The ultimate shout out must go to the emperor himself, Sith Emperor Kevin, for being our highest tier supporter. Unlimited power. It really is. Honestly. It's Kevin. He's in charge. He's running the galaxy. As George pinned this to Ian before Ian was cast as the emperor, he would say, you're applying for the role that is emperor of the universe. What do you think about that? <laughs> that was a conversation George had with Ian before Return of the Jedi. Emperor of the Universe. This is early days of Star Wars. And Ian's like, I guess I'm up for that. And look at Ian now. Come on. He is so good. And Kevin is also the man. Kevin not only 100%. is Emperor of the Patreon, but he's a very active member and vocal member on our Discord, which we love. And I really do want to give him a special shout out because he's been offering his time to show people how to play the game online That's through right. TTS as well. And it's been really amazing to see. Very gratefully bend the knee to Kevin for his support. Thank you, Kevin. Kevin and I have had a lot of quality game time together, a lot of TTS games, a lot of hangouts. And that's going to continue. So the fact that he's like just doing this with more patrons, I'm just I'm forever humbled. Quite honestly, I'm on. And it's an incredible thing. So he is, in fact, our Ian of our Star Wars universe. But I'm on. We've got some exciting stuff to talk about that's not patron related. It is not. And Jesse. Brace yourself for okay. double the excitement. So hello there, everyone. Hello there has just unleashed two game-changing partnerships that are going to blow your mind. I love First it. up, we've teamed up with Imperial Terrain, the authority in Star Wars-themed terrain, and STLs for Star Wars Shatterpoint and Star Wars Legion. So get ready for epic projects, jaw-dropping battle reports, and mind-blowingly detailed terrain, all at our fingertips. And guess what? Our listeners are in for a treat with an exclusive 5% discount on all physical and SEL purchases using the code HelloThere5 at Imperial Terrain. Incredible, Amon. Incredible. I've been a Imperial Terrain patron for many years. I've purchased so many STLs and files from Imperial Terrain, printed them, had a blast with my Star Wars Legion career. And I will say, while we're here, I'm on, my favorite part of Imperial Terrain is the fact that you print their stuff with no supports. It is nuts. 
you just buy the file, print it, you're good to go. If you want to scale it up a hair for Shatterpoint, you're also good to go. And I bought so many files over the years, Star Wars themed files, because you know how much I love to paint Star Wars terrain, build boards that are fun thematic for my players. And I'm going to recommend a couple boards real quick while we're on this Imperial Terrain conversation with our Hello There 5 code. So at Imperial Terrain, they have released a Fractured City base set. It's roughly $20. This set's incredible. It's multi-layered Coruscant type terrain, city terrain is what I call it. It doesn't necessarily have to be Coruscant, but it's what I think when I first see it. You can think of the planet, the Obi-Wan's like in Kenobi, where him and Leia are on the planet. The Spice. Yeah, he's looking to get Leia on the Spice planet. It could be Coruscant. It could be numerous places. It could be Nar It's what you want it to be. But the coolest part about this Fractured City set is that it has multi-layers and it perfectly lines up with Shatterpoint Corset terrain and Shatterpoint High Ground terrain. So you just start connecting stuff you got two layers three layers four layers you can do as much as you want incredible you got arabesh on the buildings so you've got buildings with like star wars arabesh on them you've got star wars features like canopies and different windows and writing and cylinders and power sources and all this stuff and you just build it and the best part about the set is you print it you can build it low you can build it high you can stack buildings off and on you can put different platforms in different places it's completely modular continuing with my imperial terrain suggestions that's the fractured city set i also recommend the villainy village set which is a kind of like tatooine desert planet theme set which is very strong for shatterpoint very good for star wars legion a lot of these typical arid environment buildings and like flat tops with some round parts and then last but not least i'm on my favorite the forest moon village bundle i think it's incredible it's platforms it's trees walkways it's multi-layered trees you can really live that kashik indoor etc themed planet of your dreams honestly which to us is perfect for shatterpoint because when you got a tree platform that's two or three levels that just means more shatterpoint viability right because you can have a model in the mid tier you can have a model in the high tier and the model in the low tier model on the ground right all the way everything in between so we highly recommend this stuff Prints without supports. Pick up the SCLs with our Hello There 5 code. It gets started today. Yeah, 100%. You mentioned two of my favorite SCLs is the Fractured City and then the Forest Moon. Those are great. We've talked about those on this podcast before. Very excited about getting our hands on them. And I mentioned earlier, we are going to be creating battle reports soon. And so we're very excited to be able to use that terrain, not only in our Hello There content, but also eventually hello there events that we plan on holding. That's right. And then of course, any other video content that we make as well, including reviews. So we're very excited to embark on this partnership with the Imperial Terrain team, especially because they're the leader in Star Wars themed terrain for wargaming. Yeah, tip of the iceberg, right? I'm on like, these are three bundles you can get today. Just build Shatterpoint boards. But like they have multiple Star Wars theme boards that you can just play for Shatterpoints. Like I really like some of their vehicle files and their Naboo-centric city files. Check this stuff out. Try it for Shatterpoint. Print it off. Paint it real quick. Get some thematic games on the table. Yep. And if you're a patron, some more special announcements for you. Every month, we're going to be doing a giveaway for a random STL from Imperial Terrain. Very excited that we're able to offer that to our patrons as well as just our listeners in general with that discount code. 
100% I'm on, but we have one more exciting thing to talk about, right? That's right. Jesse, remember our rock solid supporter, Mr. Laser? I love him. Yeah, I remember him. So Mr. Laser from mr-laser.square.site. We've decided to take our relationship and our bond to the next level. And Mr. Laser is now going to be one of our premier partners as well. Mr. Laser is your one-stop resource for everything Shatterpoint and beyond. He offers custom trays, accessories, and even other game systems. And the cherry on top, Jesse, you guessed it, the Hello There 5 code, which is the same code as we're offering at Imperial Terrain, now grants you a fantastic 5% discount on all purchases. Now, Mr. Laser is already a discounted site, so you're getting an additional discount. Premier discount. Premier discount. So it's time to level up your gaming experience and savings. With Hello There and our phenomenal partners, we're super excited to be partnering up with Mr. Laser on this new level, and then, of course, Imperial Terrain. So use Hello There 5. 100%. Mr. Laser is a dear friend, and I've been buying models from him for some time because I want to support his local store. And the fact that you guys listening can support his local store and help grow that with our code, hello there five is incredible. So hello there five, of course, the number five has a monster will give you 5% off his already discounted models, Shatterpoint stuff, MCP stuff, but even more than that, his accessories, Amon mentioned his trays. You can really pick up these trays for Shatterpoint, MCP, and future accessories that are really going to expand your game and really support him. And it means a lot to us. So we recommend it entirely and we encourage you to check it out. And we'll talk more about it in the future. Absolutely, Jesse. Super excited to announce these amazing partnerships. And 100%. Can't wait to see where they grow and how our community members interact with those vendors. Yeah, 100%. I guess the last paper we're going to talk about is it, when you use these codes, it benefits our relationship with these partners and benefits you, obviously, as a listener, because you get, get you a discount. So if you want to support us and want to support these partners, Use these codes and the stuff shows up, right? At the end of the year stuff where we discuss things with these people. So it means a lot to us that you support these people we've chosen to partner with. But more importantly, you're deciding to support us, right? Because you're basically saying, I listen, I heard the code. I'm going to jump in with you guys, with your partners and take it one step further. So it means a lot to us and you're helping us out as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Just full transparency. We do get a little kickback from that and that really helps us out a lot. So Thank you so much for your support if you choose to shop with Mr. Laser or Imperial Terrain. And remember, like I think one of the reasons why we chose these partnerships is because we were customers first for these products. 100%. And we trust them and we like them. And that's the only reason we decided to take that partnership to the next level. Perfectly said, Amon. Perfectly said. All right, Amon, well, let's get into today's main topic, which is our Luminara box episode. Luminara. Plans and preparations. So Jedi Master Luminara Unduli. Let's start off with something I'm going to do a little bit different today because I think this is a unique opportunity to do this, Amon, is to talk about the people that Luminara and Barris come from. So they're called the Mary Allen people. So we'll do a quick Mary Allen lore segment before we move on. So the Mary Allen people are from the planet Mary Al. Very simple. They have green or yellow tinted skin that varies a lot. There's a spectrum. They typically have tattoos, which is unique. They are spiritual people, which we'll talk about more in a minute. It's not necessarily confirmed, but they have a high force sensitivity. 
And something I find very cool about them, I mentioned they're spiritual people. So they're very religious in their culture with the force. They have a karma-like force belief. So what that means is they believe that all your actions in your life, the things you do towards people, enemies, allies, all make ripples in the force and maybe affect the galaxy at large. So very karmic belief. They believe this is a people. So even the people that are non-force sensitive in this group of people and the Mary Allen people typically still have this religious belief, which I think is pretty cool, which also means that a lot of them are force sensitive, Amon, and a lot of them become Jedi Knights or force sensitive people. And continuing with that thought process, when they become Jedi Knights or masters, they typically take on Padawans of their own species, which is unique to this group of people, though not exactly concise because there's a couple things that break that, which I'll talk about in a moment. But because of their religious beliefs around the force and their people, if there's a Jedi master that could take on another Mary Allen apprentice, they're probably going to willingly do that. makes a lot of sense as within their culture. So case in point, Luminara and Barris today, we're going to talk about that, but Luminara obviously picked Barris for several reasons, but one of the reasons she picked Barris because it fit, it, it fit within this hierarchy we've talking about, but also that rule can be broken from time to time. It's not like they don't take non-Mary Allen apprentices. Continuing on with these people, of course, they have green or yellow skin, yellow tinted skin, I mentioned, but they're mainly human humanoid other than that, but they do have these tattoos. So let's talk about the tattoos because they're pretty cool. So they have tattoos on their face, their bodies, their hands, things like that. So in their culture, they actually get tattoos at the completion of a personally significant accomplishment or a number of skills they've acquired in their lifetime. So for them, the more tattoos you have on your body, face, hands, arms, more visible places, right? Typically means that they are of higher stature, higher skill, higher accomplishment in their life. And they're such a spiritual people that they're not people to cheat, right? They're not going to be like, yeah, I have a bunch of tattoos. I did a bunch of stuff in my life. Like that's not who they are, right? Someone's not going to lie about that. So when you see someone like Luminara has a lot of tattoos on her face and some of her body that she's had a lot of personal significant accomplishments or skills that she's achieved that she personally set, that it also feeds into their whole spiritual focus. Last bit about the Miri Allen people is they have some notable Miri Allens in the Star Wars lore and canon to us as purveyors and enjoyers of the Star Wars canon that people we recognize. They have Luminara, of course, Barris, of course, Cicelyn Mir, who is a master of Mace Windu, which is very exciting, and the Seventh Sister. So I mentioned earlier, we'd break that kind of like they prefer to take their own peoples as Padawans or learners. Cicelyn Mir chose Mace because she saw something in him, clearly, like something very powerful, something notable. I also like the seventh sister from Rebels, Izamiri Allen. It's just cool. It's like another layer on top of the layers. Because I mentioned they're force-sensitive people, typically. Like, they're not all force-sensitive, but like they have a leaning towards force-sensitive. So the fact that a force-sensitive Jedi or force-sensitive person converted to the Empire, became an Inquisitor, makes a lot of sense, quite honestly. So let's get into Luminara herself, which is very interesting. Luminara Unduli was a Force-sensitive Mary Allen female Jedi Master during the final days of the Jedi Order in the Republic. She commanded the 41st Elite Corps of the Galactic Republic. Of course, that's the army we see on Kashyyyk in Revenge of the Sith. 
She, of course, was the master of Padawan Barris Ophi. She fought in numerous battles in the Clone Wars, which is important. But also, like, she was a stoic, very powerful Jedi master during the Clone Wars itself. Similar to a lot of the Jedi masters in the Jedi Temple, she was a paragon of stalwart determination, conscience, lawfulness. She was a great Jedi. Like, she was a Jedi through and through. So not only did she have this whole backing of her culture, the spirituality with her culture, but she also really lived the Jedi way. And of course, she took this on herself to train Jedi Barris Afi, which we'll see more later, that Barris goes a certain way, but Luminar did a really good job with her, which is a big deal. Now, continuing on with Luminar's story, it's very strange. And I'm on, like you said, spoiler alert for maybe end of Clone Wars onward, Rebels and stuff like that. But Luminar is one of the few Jedi we see that through her course of the Clone Wars, she fights in the second battle of the Geonosis. Crucial part to that. She fights in many other battles. By the end of Clone Wars, she's on Kashyyyk with Yoda, with the 41st Battalion I mentioned earlier, right? Like those, the boys in green. She is not killed. She's actually captured. This is a big deal because we see this later in Star Wars Rebels. Many years later, she's still captured. I say in quotes, it turns out the empire keeps her captured for a long time and eventually executes her, which is very dark. The inquisitors end up killing her after interrogating her for many years and keeping her alive for many years in captivity, kill her, keep her body contained in a device slash coffin that keeps her force midichlorians and life a little bit alive. And they just keep her as a beacon to future Jedi to hunt them from that point onward. And it's very dark. It's very sad because in a way her body's never at rest, honestly. And her, the cells and the force spirit in her body is still partially contained. And she was an incredible Jedi. She was a paragon of lawfulness, like I said, but in, in her getting captured on Kashyyyk and her just used as this beacon onward by the grand inquisitor and others, it's pretty intense. Amon, it's pretty intense and it's pretty dark for Star Wars that her body is used as a way to pull remaining living Jedi, maybe towards a little bit of light they feel in the Force. They go there because it's a master, a great Jedi, and then they're captured or killed by the Inquisitors. It's pretty wild. I remember when we actually just watched the episode recently, Raph was actually pretty shocked with kind of how the whole thing happened. It's dark. It is dark. But I have some fun facts about Luminara. When she was, you mentioned that she was on Kashyyyk. She was. She was on Geonosis, the first battle of the Clone Wars. She was. Yeah. She was instrumental in destroying some of the droid factories. But with this particular Kashyyyk scene, George actually did film her getting killed. But the scene was ultimately cut from the film, among other death scenes as well, just for length and stuff. And so what's incredible about that is... Because they decided to cut it, they were able to create, like Dave Filoni was able to create this awesome rebel storyline, right? Because Kanan doesn't want to train Ezra, doesn't think he can do it. And so he's looking for that master. And so that's how they get pulled into that trap that the Inquisitorious was setting for them, which is wild. And it's been years too. So think about it. She's either been captive for years or killed for years or both. It's probably more somewhere in the middle, right? Like she was five, six years. She was some version of captivity to execution, right? Which is very dark. Also too, Amon, I didn't mention, they completely strip her of all of her 
religious headdress and clothes. So that's actually very important with the tidbit I gave earlier about the Mary Allen people. They're very religious people. They're very spiritual people. So to remove her headpiece, her cloak, her tabards, everything, just strip her of nothing. It's very empire, right? But it's very dark. I do not like it. I do not like it. It is dark. She's lived that way for years, right? She's dead, but... But for years until she was dead. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair, The the Rebels timeline is very long from Revenge of the Sith, too. That's fair. Yeah. That's fair. A couple other tidbits. She is a master of Seresu, Form 3. That's right. Which you love. Obi-Wan, yeah. Kanan also used Seresu, fun fact, as I'm sure you knew, but for our listeners. And then, of course, she fought Asajj Ventress in the Clone Wars, and she almost got her butt handed to her. That's right. Because Asajj was using unconventional tactics. Makashi, baby. Well, Makashi with assassin training built on top of her, right? And Luminar is a very powerful, traditional Jedi, right? And, you know, we're about to get into Shirley Amon with our gameplay discussion, but Luminar is, she's less of a fighter and more of a defender and a healer. She just is. Yeah, she's very classic, like, so the way that I view Luminara is probably how the Jedi are actually supposed to perform. Sure. Which is avoid conflict, do what they believe is right, try to preserve the lives and the resources that you have available or are near you. She is known as a wonderful teacher. Like, she had some great teaching moments with Ahsoka in the Clone Wars. But at the end of the day, like, she does what she thinks is best for everyone around her and uses herself as a weapon, but more often as a shield for those around her who cannot protect themselves. And so I really do like those qualities about Luminara. And I think from a gameplay perspective, as you mentioned, we'll discuss shortly, it makes for a very unique character because like, you got to really think about it. How is AMG atomic mass games going to differentiate between all these Jedi, right? Sure. They have their personalities and their quirks and their preferences, but ultimately like, how do you make that interesting in a gameplay perspective? And what I really like about this particularly is the fact that you're able to use her in more of a healing role, almost like a paladin, if you will. No, I agree. I'm on this unique too, because I feel like we're going to return to this conversation with Master Blow, at least from a lore perspective, right? They are pure Jedi. They are pure protectors. They are pure people of the people, right? So the fact that they've leaned into this kind of paladin priest style, like you mentioned, is very interesting to me and very cool because with Illuminara, they have of course lead into this healer perspective, which I'm all about, which makes a lot of sense because she is a master of Seresu and also like just her mindset on the force and the flow of the force and her being a Miri Allen her being so spiritually tied in her headdress, everything she wears. She's just one with the force all the time. So I'm really excited to get into her card right now. Absolutely. So let's do it, Jesse, without further ado. Let's talk about Jedi Master, Luminara Unduli, who I lovingly call Lumi. That's right. Lumi Life. That's right. Lumi Life. So she's got a durability of three and a stamina of nine. She has the tags, a force user, Galactic Republic, and Jedi. Yeah. And of course, she costs eight squad points, and it brings a force of three to your squad. So she's that average cost we're seeing in the game. She's eight. The tags make sense. Her cost and force makes sense. Nothing really crazy here, Amon. No, everything seems to be in order. It's almost as if she's quite prepared. I like it. I'm glad you got that. So we'll go to her active ability. Her first one 
It's a very strong one. It's called Full Recovery. It costs two force. Choose an allied unit within range three. The chosen unit removes all damage and conditions from itself. Let's talk about this for a minute. So obviously, two is an incredible tax on your force. We've talked about this on this show. And I think that thought process continues to grow and expand. And we continue to lean into that thought process of twos a lot. But this is an amazing ability, right? It's incredible. It's game-defining in certain instances. And I know that some people might think like, oh, like most of your characters don't really leave the board anyways. And if a character has an injured token, it doesn't matter. And that's true and that's all fair. But it's the threat, right? It's the threat of I can maybe be a little bit more aggressive with my other characters because I know that if I end up in a tough spot, I can shatter point with Lumi and heal them or I can eventually activate Lumi and heal them with full recovery. It's also great because it works on herself. She is an allied unit within three. It does not say an other allied unit, so she can heal herself, which is great. I recently played a game with Lumi where she held down the middle of the board on that middle objective, and she just stood there, and she just took a lot of punishment. And then when I felt like she was about to go down, I got lucky that I drew her, and boom, full recovery. And my opponent was like, I'm just not even going to bother with that. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. It's the full Jedi way, 100%. I think when you think of this, you think of a like a primary character, like healing an Anakin, healing a Maul, right? Like That's the high ceiling, right? But also think of this like topping your clones off. It's very important. It's a big deal. And the conditions part to me I'm on is one of the best parts of this. Obviously, the damage is a big deal, but the conditions is where it really sings in Shatterpoint. Yeah, moving the conditions is honestly just as strong, if not stronger, as you're saying. All conditions. Yeah. All conditions. Yes. It's an incredible super recover and it's amazing. It's in fact called full recovery, right? It makes sense. But you're right. One thing I really liked that you said is that obviously Anakin or primary rather is your best ideal scenario, but don't sleep on full recovering a secondary or supporting unit. In fact, there's a lot of conjecture in Shatterpoint right now that speaks favorably about supporting units. And one can argue, and I could argue that myself as well, and maybe we'll do that in a future episode, is that supporting units are arguably your strongest or most impactful units on the battlefield. And what this allows you to do is this allows you to spread those, split up those supporting units, right? If you have a two-character unit and get on those objectives, those active objectives as fast as you can, one of the drawbacks of that is that you can face a lot of punishment, right? You can have multiple enemies attacking you from different angles, different board positions, but Luminara can offset that with full recovery, which is also very powerful and maybe waste some of your opponent's activations in itself. No, 100%. I will say, like, in the cons of this camp, I've learned playing a lot of Shatterpoint that, like, your forces are split quite often, right? So sometimes it's like, your opponent will be smart and not engage Luminar and her squad on the right side of the board, and they'll heavily engage your squad on the left side of the board, and Luminar can't quite get over there and do the recovery, and that's where you get like, in these interesting positions, so it's got its pros and cons, right? But incredible ability. This is one of the reasons you're playing her, right, is this and I think her identity. So if you can do these things well, practiced as a master of the Mary Allen spirituality of the Force, you're in a good spot, right, with this play style. I agree. And again, I think 
you talked about the con being that range three, right? Maybe she's not near the opponent that needs or the allied unit that needs the heal. But that's okay, because I do think Luminara is one of those characters who can do really well in the middle of the board. A lot of characters try to avoid that. Like Maul, for example, loves being on the flank. But Luminara can go toe-to-toe and hang in the middle because she has that full heal. Yeah, and it's like if she survives against uh, Vader or an Anakin, right? Just barely. (laughs) And then she goes and she heals. What a swing. Huge. Huge. So it's incredible. But Amon, we got to move on to more of her abilities. She has another active ability called Sprint. Costs one force. It's very simple. It's not very good compared to a lot of our other characters in the game. Each character in this unit may dash. So Luminar pays one force to dash. She doesn't have force speed. She doesn't have force jump. She's officially the slowest Jedi thus far. And I think she might be the slowest Jedi for a long time. We'll see. We'll see. I don't want to say that it's bad. It's because bad is relative, right? It's helpful to have, right, as a tool. Yeah. But it's bad com- at, in comparison to all the other Jedi and Sith. And that, that's okay. Honestly, it's still a tool in her toolbox. Yeah. Obviously, I'd rather have like force jump at the same distance, but the elevation, force the verticality. Speed. Force speed is obviously very good. But I think it's balanced because A, we've talked about she's more like a paladin type. She's tanky. She sits there and does a lot of like, I'm going to hold this point and I'm defensive. And so having her be too mobile was probably for a design choice and design perspective and balance, which I completely appreciate, but it's not bad. I used it in my last game when I played her. An extra move is an extra move, whether it's a dash, advance, climb, or jump. And so it can help her get into areas where she needs to, and oftentimes allows her to maybe even escape to other points as well. There's so much utility with an extra move. And so, yes, it's not a force speed. It's not a true advance. It's not a jump, but it's better than nothing. Some characters don't have any sort of extra movement. Yeah, it's not even a clone dash with the hunker, but it's still something. like it, It'll get you to Ingress Point, which is massive. It is. I'm on for sure. That the other Jedi have jumps, buff jumps, like hello there, or four speeds, and she just has a dash. But I think it's also because this is who she is as it's her character identity. Like she's not she super is, fast. She's a defensive character. Like this isn't even like a force move. She is just sprinting. Yeah. Right. It's good. hundred percent. So she's just running. She's not using the force dogment or movement because I assume, and we'll talk about this more with her identity, but the way that Luminara channels the force is not necessarily an aggressive way. Like almost feels like elemental or natural in a way. She stepped in with the flow of the force. hundred percent. Yeah, for sure. That's probably why her identity is named that. So we'll go to her (laughs) next ability, which is a reactive ability called Precise Strike, which costs a force as well. So we've got three abilities so far, all with a force cost here. After this unit makes a combat action, it may use this ability. Choose an allied Galactic Republic supporting unit within range three of a character in this unit. If the chosen unit... If the chosen unit's order card is in the order deck, each character in that unit may dash. If the chosen unit's order card is not in the order deck, one character in the chosen unit may make a five dice attack. Good. It's control the battlefield. It really is. Like, what I really like about it is it's open information because you know what units are in your order deck and you know which ones aren't because you flipped your cards, right? And your opponent knows that too. So I really like that your opponent can 
try to plan for it or try to anticipate it. But ultimately, I think it's a really fun ability because what it really allows you to do is it can help you set up a character's or a rather a unit's activation before they activate because they get that movement. But what it also does is, hey, maybe I have a unit in that's already activated, but maybe they're in a vital position or maybe my opponent's being really careless with their placement of their characters because they know they don't, won't face a rebuttal for a while, maybe the next turn or until maybe the Shatterpoint card is drawn. And this can allow you to punish that. This can allow you to make use out of your units that have already activated, which I really like. I really like it. It makes total sense in the way it functions. Just gives you a little bit more options, a little bit more choice. Yeah, it also, like, echoing what you said, Amon, it also gives you, like, a lot of layers of control on top of the battlefield, where it's like, the more you play Shatterpoint, the more you play Shatterpoint with Luminara, you're going to see the matrix, right? You're going to see these paths. You're going to see, like, how viable is this? Do I really need these, like, dashes? Do I need these attacks? How important is it? At the end of the day, free actions are free actions, right? You'll play a force for it. I think it's really helpful. But it's a range three bubble still. There's a lot of nuance and, I don't know, effectiveness to the power of it. So you've really got to execute it in the best way. But I do love the, it's either or, right? It's what's the deck look like? Who's around you? Choices. Yeah. Now keep in mind, it says the card must be in the order deck, so it won't affect reserved units. Of course. Good point. Yeah, it's a small distinction, but one that I think needs to be said, but obviously just don't pick a reserved unit, right? There's only one. It might be Obi-Wan. We'll get to that. Yeah. You just can't help yourself, can you? I just can't. But also, come on, Flow of the Force with Obi-Wan's patience. We know it's coming. Why don't you talk about Flow of the Force? Yeah, so this is pretty complex. So Flow of the Force is her identity. So once per turn, when an enemy unit becomes wounded... After the effect is resolved, one allied character may dash. So it's global. Pretty good. When he wound an enemy unit, it's part of a game state you want to do in the game. Someone on your map, on your side, gets to move with a short movement tool, a dash. So very helpful. Additionally, when an enemy character wounds an allied unit, after the effect is fully resolved, a character in another allied unit may recover three times. Just refresher at home, recover, of course, is any number of health equal to the recover number or number of conditions equal to the recover number. So this could easily, Amon, be like two stamina in one condition, two conditions, one stamina, three conditions. It's what you want to do. Additionally, with Flow of the Force, there's a third clause, which is very incredible. You may look at the top card of your order deck before revealing an order card or choosing to activate from your reserve. Keep in mind the second part, you actually have to have a model in reserve. It sounds simple, but like it's important. So basically when you're playing Luminara, every time you draw from your deck, you can always look at it, but it's more impactful when you have a model in reserve because then you're looking at it, you're looking at just yourself, you have a model in reserve and you're like, okay, do I don't go with some person I just drew or the reserve? She sees the force a little bit early, like what's happening. It's very cool. It's very defensive, like you said, Amon. I think it's an incredible identity, and it is three parts, so let's break it down one by one. I think you did a good job of summarizing it and talking about some of the use cases. But what I think is really compelling about this is that there is a benefit when you do the wounding or when you get wounded, right? And I really like that. So, A, maybe you want to put Luminara in a list where a lot of aggressive pieces around her, 
And so you're really relying or banking on that full recovery to be able to allow you to heal characters who are maybe in a bad spot. Or maybe she's with, for example, like I'm playing Luminara with Mandos, and then I play, my other Mando team is with Maul. I think there's some good synergy to that because they can be aggressive. Clan Kreese has a little lower health pool, so full recovery really helps there. But again, yep. like Mandos are super mobile. Making them even more mobile is great, right? Because then they can be everywhere they need to. But even if it's not Mandos, free dashes are awesome. As you mentioned, it's global. Now, when an enemy wounds your character, this is really cool too because you can build teams who maybe like to damage themselves. She pairs well with Vader because Vader has that great sure innate ability, right? Where you take the damage, then you get three plus dice. Maul is a rather great one because his identity is where he can just sustain by rage. Wound himself. And even Inquisitors. Inquisitors are pairing really well with goodness the fact that like they are single units, the supports, and they're trying to put as much damage out as they can. And so being able to help them heal when one of them goes down is pretty influential. So I think overall, like I really like the fact that not only do Luminara's abilities always function when something happens, when a character is being wounded, but it actually heavily influences your list construction. And I really do enjoy that. But I think the best part about this is looking at the top of the order deck before revealing an order card. And I'll tell you why. Okay. Really, as you mentioned, and rightfully so, you stress this point, is that there must be a reserve card, right? To where this really comes into play. You want to get one in reserve when you're playing her fairly early. Yeah. You actually hope to draw a primary early so you can just reserve them immediately. So what this allows you to do is this actually allows you to obviously make more optimal decisions because you have technically perfect information so you can affect the game state. But my favorite part about this is the gamesmanship that can come with it. Okay. Because it's a little bit of bluff, right? It's what you can do is you can take a look at the top of your card. It could be like the worst unit possible, but you could pretend like it's not. Maybe you can like look at your other piece and start measuring from another miniature or from another character. And so it can actually activate mind games, which I think is fun, whether you like that or not. Like it's tools that I'm using at my disposal. Call it the dark side, if you will. But yeah, you're using the flow of the force to use the dark side for sure. I love it. For sure. And it's fun because like it can put your opponent like, oh, do they have Maul next? It could just be like super commandos, but then. What's cool is then you can reserve them and do the whole shenanigans all over again. And maybe your opponent doesn't care either way, but I really like it because A, perfect information, secondary, supplementary. I do like the potential mind gains that come with it. Oh, it's so cool, man. It's so cool. I love that all of her stuff is like, are you playing the game well? Yes. Okay. Then it's good. Like your models become wounded. You're wounding enemies. Things are happening that are beneficial for you. And are you choosing the order deck correctly? She just yeah. gives you options, right? She gives you like what I call is like she's the ultimate kind of mid-range model where it's like I wouldn't call her hard control by any means because she doesn't have hard control in her kit. But like the fact that you've always, as you said, I'm on have a decision tree of options when things happen in the game because she has this connection to the flow of the force. Incredible because that once per turn when an enemy unit becomes wounded. As the effects is resolved, move one allied character with a dash. That is a very tough decision to make at the right time, right? No one to do it. Also, when an enemy character wounds an allied unit, as the effects is resolved, you can recover three. Another very tough decision to make. And it's like, it just shows that like the longer she's on the table, hopefully the whole game, 
she's going to have a huge impact because her innate passive impact is enough. Let's forget the full recovery for a minute. Let's just talk about her identity. That's enough. Come on. It really is. And it rewards you for doing many things. Like if you're winning the game, as you say, and you're wounding enemy characters and you're being aggressive, making good decisions, then what she's going to do is she's going to allow you to take advantage of that by keep repositioning. It's like, think about it like from a military perspective, right? Yeah. Like you keep taking out your targets. All right, let's keep moving forward and let's repositioning. But on the flip side, if you're taking losses, don't worry. I'm still going to instill courage in the rest of my units and tell them to keep going by getting that recover actions. And so I think very great design with Luminara. She's not like super sexy in terms of like her card, but I really do think she she can do a lot in the hands of a good player and she can do incredible things in the hands of a very well-tenured player. 100%. We're going to talk about what she could do on her trees here and her like defensive nature, Amon, because let's just get all pretense out of the way. She does not hit very hard. No. And that's okay. That's okay. She's bringing a lot to your team. She's almost a full support primary. And that's interesting. And I don't mean support in the way of support and Shatterpoint, which is a your third model down the tier on your strike team. Support in the minis gaming sense. Like the she supports your entire team with her abilities. She's like an augmenter. Yeah, fully augmenting your team. Perfectly said. So let's talk about her first form, which is form two, Makashi. Let's do it. So I was surprised to see she was a Makashi user. Okay. Well, yeah. I don't know if you have any lore tidbits on that, but wasn't ready for that when I first saw that. She can duel. She can duel. And we've talked about it before. Makashi is not, it's not aggressive. It's duelist in nature. It's cool. Yeah, right? that's fair. I can see that. Yeah. Let's get into her stats here. Five ranged defense, six melee defense with seven melee attack. No ranged attack profile on form two Makashi. She has two expertise, defensive and offensive. Defensive is called strategic defense. One expertise gets one block, two to three, two blocks, four plus, two blocks, and a jump. Just let's get all like pretense out of the way. This is like her least defensive expertise, but it's still pretty good. Yeah, it's not bad. It's very reminiscent of like Mandalorian defense. Which is great. Lightsaber, which is her offensive expertise. She's quite a literal person. <laughs> One to two expertise, she's getting a crit and a hit. Three to four, a crit and two hits. Five plus, two crits and a hit. That's quite a bit, honestly, the crits. I don't mind it. I mean, I think, as you mentioned, she's not like known for her dueling prowess, but she's still a Jedi. And so I like the guaranteed crit hit on one expertise. It allows her to really... It's scary. Yeah, it just pads those offensive dice because we know that attack dice can spike on D8s one way or the other. Yeah, and this, like, at the gate is her more offensive form, right? Because we know Makashi is a little bit more aggressive than Suresu. And so she has more dice in this form and more chances to get these expertise. Yep, absolutely. And so let's talk about what we do with that expertise when and if we get them. So off the rip, we start with a reposition and a damage. That's the first thing on the tree. We're talking tree here. It's pretty good. Yeah, and I'll mention why I think that's pretty good. Amelie, I'm on because this is coming to my games with Lumi. You can use this to set up the next part of the tree, which is the push. And what I mean when you can use this to set it up, if you're like in a non-optimal position to push your opponent, you can move to the opposite side of them and then push them with the next part of the tree. It's just a cool like starting move 
very Mikashi too. That sort of like dodge to the side, parry. We've talked about it before, Mikashi. We've talked about three models now in this game that have Mikashi and their kit. So it's very cool, the duel's nature. It is. And I think that's the optimal use case in really trying to get someone off a point. I think what's really nice too is that you can just use this form just for this first reposition, right? Like we talked about how she's slow, but she's really not that slow when she's using Mikashi because maybe you can advance, sprint, make an attack, and then do another advance. It's pretty solid. Yeah, and we didn't talk about it either, but obviously the flow of the force too. You can use the flow of the force to give herself dashes as well to help get around her lack of mobility. For sure. Yeah, absolutely. So from there, you have two different options you can go. You can either go up or straight. So we'll start with the straight path, which will be two damage for the second tile. So you're three damage. Yeah, three damage in a reposition is pretty solid. If we go to the third tile, it's a shove and a damage. If we go to the fourth tile, it's two more damage. And then we go to that final tile if we choose the straight path, which is another shove and a damage. So overall, we're looking at eight damage, a reposition, and two shoves. Yeah, and spoiler alert, this is her most damage she can do, period. Either tree, either form. So if you want to do the most damage, a little bit of pushing, go straight down Makashi. Yep, straight down the blade. That's right. But Amon, there's a couple offshoots on this, which are, I think are a little bit more interesting. I do too. And so the way that I want you to envision this is imagine a straight line and then two pyramids or two triangles. Nice. What we're effectively going to do is just we're just going to replace the second and fourth tiles with these two new tiles. And then you can kind of flip flop. And I'll talk all about that as we get through. So let's say we start again with the reposition and the damage. Now we're going to go up that first triangle, that pyramid, and we're going to get a shove and a damage. And then from there, you have to go back down to that same third tile, which is a shove and a damage. So at this point, in order to get to the third tile, it's either reposition, damage, shove and damage, or reposition, damage, two damage, and then the shove and damage, right? Now from that third tile onwards, we can continue down that straight path, or we can go up the second pyramid, which is a jump and a damage. All right. Now, if you're still with me, from there, we end at the bottom, which is a shove and two damage. So what this tree allows you to do is get three shoves at bare minimum if you're able to fill the entire tree, but it also allows you to jump. So you can get more maneuverability, as we mentioned earlier, that reposition and the jump. It's crazy. It's very Jedi, right? Like a lot of pushes, a lot of jumps, moving around the battlefield, pushing people. I love it. I think this is like where she likes to live. Honestly, if she's holding a point, like as Amon said, where you really want her to Hold a point, but we're about to talk about form three, Seresu, which is her healing form. Yeah. So, well, I think Makashi is good and in a pinch, if you really need some offense from Lumi, she can help you do that with the seven dice because it's the higher of the two forms. More guaranteed pushes too. Yeah. More guaranteed pushes. This is obviously her offensive displacement style stance. I prefer, and it sounds like Jesse prefers as well, form three, Seresu. Form three, Seresu. Immediately, what you notice is she has six defense on both range and melee, which, if you compare to the previous tree, her range defense goes up one, which I think is really helpful. This is probably the stance you want to start the game in. Now, the only difference is she gains one on range, but she loses one on her melee attack. Goes down to six. But again, six isn't bad. It's it's about average, but it's not bad. Hey, it's better than Obi's, which is five. That is true. That is true. Now... 
this is probably where I think you see the most shine. Because if you look at her offensive expertise, it's the exact same as her Makashi side. So I'll run through that very quickly for posterity's sake. One expertise, crit, and a hit. Two to four, a crit and two hits. Five plus two crits and a hit. What really does change is instead of regular strategic defense, Lumi is now focused defense. Flow the force, baby. Flow the force. Her first expertise is a block and turns a crit into a regular hit. Incredible. Two to three. Yeah, it's pretty good. Two to three is two blocks, turns a crit to a hit, and turns a hit to a failure. That's a sweet spot. Yep. And then four plus expertise is three blocks, turns a crit to a hit, and a hit to a failure. She means business in this form. She, yeah, she means business for, yeah, defending. And it's amazing because this is what allows her to be that tanky midline fighter, in my opinion. Now, going through her damage tree, it's a bit of a complicated one, but we're going to start with the first tile, which is just a single damage. Less impactful than the Makashi. Yeah, for sure. Less impactful. But again, that's not really the shtick here. The shtick is to survive and be that focal point of defense for as long as she can. Yeah, no. And quick refresher for you and I, Aman, and of course, the listeners on Makashi, the first form being one damage and reposition. We're talking about on the show, but reposition, very powerful. We're talking about it more on today's show because you can get out of engagement with reposition, right? Yeah, you're allowed to advance out of engagement. Full movement. Yeah. Yeah. Suresu, similar to Obi-Wan's, you got to weather this like early spot being weaker to get more interesting results. 100%. So the options from this first tile are either a straight line, which is straight line goes all the way through for five tiles. Or again, we have that semi-pyramid shape here. So we'll do the top line. We'll go over both secondary options before converging on that third tile. So from the first damage, you can either go straight and get two recover, which is awesome, or you can pin and deal two damage. So a little bit of offense or sustain, right? Nice. From that, if we continue down the straight line, we're going to get a shove and two damage. So regardless of what second path you choose, continuing at that straight line, the third tile is a shove and two damage. Then the fourth tile is a damage, and then the fifth tile again on that straight line, is three recovers. Madness. Yeah, I mean, if you get a good attack roll, you can just recover five health, which is incredible. Yeah, you don't have to do the full recovery in theory. Because like, maybe you got five recoveries off this. Not a big deal. Like, save your force. And especially if she's near her friends, right? She can just heal them. Yeah, exactly. 100%. Now, if we go back to that second tile where it's two recovers, there is a downward path. It little dips a little bit. And so from there, you can do two damage, and then it forces you to go to a jump in two damage, and then that gets you back to the end of the tree, which is three recover. So once again, if you're following along at home, this tree doesn't do a ton of damage. If you go to the, that bottom path, it's five damage, but it's five recovers. Pretty good bottom path. Yeah, and honestly, I like this path, to be honest, or this stance, rather. It's great because I'm not expecting Luminara to really take anybody out. Yeah. And as I play Shutterpoint more and more, I don't care to take people out. My goal is right. to just reposition them or displace them or really just make sure that my character can tank a point and Luminara can do that. Especially some of the maps that I've been seeing online, but also in person, 
They can get really creative. If you can just put her against like a wall where she can't be pushed, she can't be shoved. Sure. She's not going anywhere. Good point. Yeah, absolutely. It's cool too, because you can always swap to Makashi and really lay on the pushes if you really want to. So this form will help you sustain. Makashi will help you push them out. And keep in mind with Shatterpoint, you can always swap your form once per activation. So you could end up or start in whatever spot you want to be in and swap to the other for your turns over. So you've got options with her, which I think is super cool. And like you said, Amon, her defenses and her attack dice are not really that different. A lot of models have pretty stark differences in their forms. Not so much with her. They're pretty similar. So it's like, what do you want to do? Yeah, even with Form 2 Mikashi, like, it's a good expertise, defensive expertise. Yeah. But focus defense on Form 3 Suresu. Incredible. It's what you want. It's really good. So closing out this segment, I'm on before we move on to our secondary. What's our playstyle summary and discussion of the ways we want to focus on playing Luminara on the table? Yeah, I think Luminara, as we've almost said at nauseum at this point, is going to improve your team's ability to react to whatever game state your team is in. Yep. If things are going well, Flow of the Force allows you to be more mobile on the battlefield when you're wounding those enemy characters. If things aren't going in your favor and your character is getting wounded, that's okay because it improves the efficacy of your other allied units, whether it's removing conditions off them or giving them more health so that they can be on the table longer, survive longer, hold those points longer. And then I think the options that she provides in terms of looking at your order deck is incredible. Now, in terms of how you want to play Luminara, I've mentioned a couple times now that I like putting her in the middle of the board or on a midline point and controlling one sphere of the battle. And I'm not saying every game you play, yeet her into the middle of the board because she's going to die in some games. Yeah. Dice aren't going to be in your favor. And I'm not saying you should do that in most games. I'm just saying in my last game, it worked out for me because that's what I thought was best. But I can easily see her being on the middle objective on a flank, holding it down, controlling it, not moving. I think what really helps Luminara is backstopping her against other pieces of terrain. And creative map setups that really challenge you will have a lot of terrain near objective points that will cause hindrances and create advantages for both sides. And so try to find a a place where you can backstop her. And backstopping pretty much means is that she can't be pushed. You can't complete that push, right? Because she'll bump into something, whether it's another miniature or another piece of terrain. Because one of Luminara's weaknesses is that she isn't very mobile. She just has sprint. Now, she can be quite mobile when she's attacking, but you don't really get to attack very much with her over the course of the game, right? In theory, maybe three times if you go to struggle three. Maybe. So you're not really getting much in terms of maximizing that damage tree. So I really think you want to focus on making the most of her force augmentation. But then also, the full recovery can really help you in a pinch. If you've overcommitted Mm. or there's an enemy spike that you really didn't want to happen because DHs, they spike. Sure. She can help you alleviate those concerns. Well said, Amon. Yeah, and of course, her identity is like, just massive and crucial to her playstyle, right? Where it's like, we've talked about the power of identities in this game, but like hers is not selfish. 
Hers is anti-mole. Hers is anti-even Anakin, right? Where it's like they do stuff for themselves and things happen. Hers is not like that. She's on the table. Things are just happening for your team at large and global. So you're just benefited by her being on the table and doing stuff. So I think she's more of a force multiplier, like Amon said earlier. She's just a passive, awesome character for your team. I think you lean into her identity in massive ways. Like Amon said, like using Mandos or clones aggressively and getting more movements or heals out of them because of her identity happening. You can build your team off of that and base your activations less of what she does during her activations, more of her identity as a whole and what she brings to your team. And I think it's also why she pairs well potentially with Kenobi because Kenobi is a lot of just buffing your team as a whole. And if that's your play style, you want to lean into that. Obi-Wan's ability allows those defensive buffs to happen to your team and then her allowing you to maybe heal Obi-Wan or heal a character that your opponent may have worked really hard to chew through is... It's frustrating for them. It is. (laughs) Sounds very frustrating for the opponent. That being said, I do like the uh, fact that she can reward clone aggressiveness by giving those dashes because clones are a little slower. I mean, we many people talk about it. It's Mandos are so great because the jump, right? And the clones rely more on those entry points to get to where they need to go. And maybe flow of the force allows you to benefit off the fact that your other primary or your secondaries might be really aggressive, which then allows your supporting units to zip around the board as well. So I like Luminara. She works great in the Republic list, but I think she's a great splash primary as well. Which is kind of unique for these Republic characters, right? Because a lot of them are very Republic focused, but it seems like her. There's really no Republic words here in her card, right? It's all just her team. I run her with Mandos and Maul. So she's a Jedi. She's going to protect whoever she's with, right? She's a Jedi healer at that. So, all right, I'm on moving on to our next lore in this box. We're talking about Barris Offie. So Barris Offie was another Mary Allen female Jedi. She was a Padawan originally under Jedi Master Luminara. She participated in the first battle of Geonosis when Luminara and Barris show up to save Anakin, Padme, and Obi-Wan when they're captured in the gladiatorial arena. She continues to serve alongside Luminara throughout the entire Clone Wars as her Padawan learner. She was an incredible mind and learner. I say that because anytime she wasn't on the battlefield, she was reading, she was writing, she was learning, she was memorizing. She's really well known as this Padawan that was always like reading battle plans, reading maps, reading history, prepping for the next battle, which is very unique to her, I feel like, in a lot of ways. And kind of lays some of the groundwork of what how she was and things that happened in her life. She actually preferred studying the Jedi text to fighting. So that's notable. And of course, during her time as a Padawan, she became fast and best friends with Padawan Ahsoka Tano. Of course, the Padawan learner of Anakin, which is super interesting because they were super different. They were polar opposites, right? And this is what kind of bonded them. They were like oil and water and they bonded over their differences and they truly were fast friends. They're like a strong relationship where you have two people that are very different pros and cons, balance each other out. But of course, they really bonded over the second battle of Geonosis, where they went back to Geonosis, take it back from the Geonosians. And Ahsoka and Barris in particular 
helped win the battle through a lot of their knowledge and pre-planning, especially Barris studying the maps of Geonosis, like I said, way before the battle and things like that. As the Clone Wars kept going on, this is where Barris gets even more interesting. She, she Barris recognized patterns with the Jedi's roles in the war and how they probably shouldn't be generals. That's probably wrong. And then maybe they lost their ways from the original Jedi Order and that she came fully disillusioned with this whole Jedi way that they were fully acting with the Republic in full tandem and that they were deciding to be these generals in this war. She kind of brought it to Ahsoka, didn't go well, had disagreements about it. And she started distrusting the Jedi more. And there's a lot more features of this discussion that I haven't mentioned, but we don't have time to mention it today. But other things happened to her in the war. Of course, keep in mind, Amon, she's a Jedi Padawan. So, of course, she was taken from her family at a young age, right? So, Luminar was her parental figure. So, she's already got trauma and issues there. And then on top of that, too, she's, once again, just like Ahsoka, she's a teen in a war for years. (laughs) This is not normal, right? So, she's got all these layers of issues with Jedi, concerns, questions, disillusionment, like I mentioned. So, this is not like... Well, before I say this next part, of course, there's layers of this. It's not like she just goes crazy one day. She certainly doesn't. But deciding to act on her concerns, she helps orchestrate a bombing of the Jedi Temple in orders to basically like create distrust and issues within the Jedi Order to maybe stop the war, maybe have them second-guess their thoughts on being generals in this war. It gets messy because she bombed people. People died in this thing. She also even continues down this path and impersonates Asajj Ventress and frames Ahsoka for the bombing, which this is where I get to a lot of spoiler territory. We're talking about spoilers today. This is massive parts in Ahsoka's storyline because, of course, they're best friends. Now we're getting to layers and layers where it's like Ahsoka's even been questioning things that the Jedi have been doing but on a more light side path versus a more questioning dark side path. And now Ahsoka is framed for all these things Barris has done, which is very intense. Eventually, Anakin catches Afi. He finds Barris and he brings her to justice in front of the council and the Republic as a whole. Barris does mention that she did this because the Jedi have lost their way. They're no longer the protectors they used to be. They're no longer spiritually tied to the Force and the flow of the Force. They're more just like generals and she's against it. But she does clear Ahsoka. But at this point, Amon, the damage has been done. Ahsoka's already been reprimanded, removed from the Jedi grouping. And Ahsoka's kind of done with the Jedi's too. Not in a dark side way like Barris is, but she's just like, you know what? If all this political stuff happened, I'm just, I'm done. It was very tough because this is a catalyst for Ahsoka's walking away from the Jedi Order. Eventually, Barris gets locked up and she's shown that she's corrupted by the dark side at this point because, of course, I mentioned earlier when she impersonated Asajj, she did don the red sabers. She did attack Ahsoka. She did attempt to kill other people with her sabers. Anakin ends up beating her using a little bit of dark side power. He pushes her up against that tree in the, in the lobby with the dark side of the force, aggressive negotiations, and dim so. He just beats her down, though she holds her own for some time. And yeah, this is very compelling because Barris is not full dark side. She's not Sith, right? But she's not Jedi. And this is all a catalyst for Anakin, a catalyst for Ahsoka, right? And what's crazy, Amon, is this is multi-layered because Ahsoka leaving the Jedi Order and leaving Anakin, of course, is another catalyst for Anakin's loss, his inability to lose another important female person in his life. He lost his mother, 
he loses his Padawan, he loses his wife and his mind, right? These are all layers upon layers. And what's funny is like, what's crazy is like, Barris is part of those multi layers of Anakin as well. Even though he's like, Anakin is so mad and so frustrated because he's like, this is not fair that Ahsoka has been pinned for this. And the council just deems it as it is. And it makes it even more frustrated with the council because he can't get over Ahsoka's, I guess how Ahsoka has been deemed of this crime, even though she did nothing. In fact, she pushed against Barris. It's really interesting because as you say, it highlights a lot of things in multiple ways. I think first and foremost, the thing that's most obvious is the Jedi themselves are just so willing to like accept blame on another. Ooh, that hurts. Yeah, it's tough. Yeah. Right? They just blindly like, yeah, I guess Ahsoka must have done it. It looks like it adds up. And they're not able to figure out For a that bit. Yeah. in their myths, Barris has fallen to the dark side. She is doing all these activities, and it just shows how blind the Jedi are. I think in addition to that, there's this whole like child soldier element as well. 100%. That I think is a little messed up because Ahsoka and Barris grew up in this time period, right? In the Clone Wars where the Jedi know nothing but violence and conflict, right? They're supposed to be, air quotes, peacekeepers, but they're doing a lot of killing themselves, whether it's droids or separatist fighters. And so you have these individuals, these Padawans who like are growing up thinking they're supposed to be some sort of like monastic order and instead are effectively child soldiers, right? And so it, I think it really shows in the way that they're upbringing in terms of who their masters are. So Ahsoka, she has this resource in Anakin where she can explain and confide her fears, talk about her concerns. Some nuance. And Anak- yeah. Nuance, right? And Anakin's really available for her. And when Anakin's not there, she has Obi-Wan. She has Padme. True. She has all these people, these outputs that she has that she can speak with and confide in and learn from and rely on. Whereas I feel like Barris and Luminara, they almost had this very cookie cutter, distant, by the book relationship where Barris isn't maybe able to express herself in the same way that Ahsoka is. And so what happens? You mentioned that she's a learner. She's a reader. Maybe she starts reading the wrong things. Maybe she gets influenced by the wrong things. But ultimately, like Barris necessarily isn't wrong in her thought process she's wrong in her actions 100 percent. and you also get tied into this whole element i mentioned earlier why i added this element to lore entirely the mary allen people they're so spiritually tied to the force with their religion whether you're a jedi or not the force and the karmic nature of it is part of your religion as a culture as a whole so the fact that it's so baked into who they are luminara and Barris in particular because they are our heroes and the mary allen people we really know in, in canon that's extra tough for Barris too, right? Because she's like, this isn't right. This isn't right. This is not the spiritual way of the galaxy. This is not karmic. And she acts on a way that she feels is the most correct and through her mindset, though it is wrong. And she pays the price for it, right? Yeah. And also, Mon, like you mentioned, the child soldier thing, I'm so glad you mentioned it because it is such a tough and compelling and deep part of Star Wars in this era. And think about this. Ahsoka and Barris in particular, they're young preteen women. And through the course of this war, they grow from young preteen women all the way to grown adult women. What a time to experience your adolescent youth. Absolutely horrendous, right? Insane, right? To be from like a 13, 14 year old all the way to like an 18 year old adult. It's not right, but it's the time that they lived in the galaxy and it's what they were part of. And it is what it is. 
And one thing I can appreciate about Barris is that she sees that the Jedi are complicit in this proxy war. She is able to identify, it speaks to her force abilities, that she's able to identify that there is like some sort of dark lord. I forget the exact quote, but she mentions like you're playing into the hands of the Sith. And I think one of my favorite parts about Barris is that she takes accountability, right? The way of her people and the karmic state is that she never says you, the Jedi. She says, we are guilty. Yeah. We are wrong. Yeah. We are the ones that are doing this and we should be put on trial. All of us. She's saying like, I'm also guilty, just as guilty as you are, Yoda, Obi-Wan, Anakin, Ahsoka, etc. Now, framing your best friend and bombing people, big no-no, 100%. (laughs) A little too far, yeah. But I think her heart was in the right place. And again, this kind of goes down this consistent theme that we're seeing, Jesse, is like we've said in previous episodes, like the road to hell is paved with good intentions, right? right? And like also think about, too, the degrees of separation between her and Ahsoka, right? They're young, preteen, Jedi gifted Padawans in this academy, right? Like they're some of the best, right? And they're seeing stuff that's right and wrong. They're acting on it. They're making certain decisions. They're both brash. It's interesting, too, Amon, I will mention while we're here before we move on to her strategy, but it's like they're polar opposites, right? Ahsoka is the brash, eager, intense. Barris is the studied, consummate, lawful, focused. They're different sides of a coin. And I think it's very interesting too, because inadvertently, the coin by the end of the war is flipped on its head and they flip sides. I'm not saying either one's right or wrong. I'm just saying because Barris was so committed to this path that she has issues with the nuance and Ahsoka has actually has more openness and Ahsoka grows as a woman and actually becomes more focused, more Jedi and less eager. She becomes less Anakin, ironically, by the end of the war. And Barris becomes more Anakin. She becomes more dark side, more kind of brash. And it's crazy because they flip because where they started, right? And because the war and what they experienced and Barris just had enough. She's had enough of being the perfect student, the perfect Jedi, the perfect. And she goes the other way. Yeah. One thing I really appreciate about Star Wars is that George and Dave, they aren't afraid to get political in the sense of oh no they're not afraid to like parallel what's happening in real life and so around the same time the clone wars is happening is there was a lot of comments on like young individuals who grew up disillusioned or are having issues with the way that they see society and they want to make change through it and unfortunately some of it is violent right like barris is essentially a good person who is sick of all this violence this death these lies these Mm. this war Mm. And in this violent galaxy, she decides to voice her own opinion and her own thoughts in the only way that she knows how, which is violently, right? Crazy. It's incredible. In essence, she becomes like a homegrown terrorist. Yeah, 100%. She is that young boy or young girl who grows up disillusioned. No one notices how unhappy they are. No one ever supports them. No one has any awareness. And so the only way that they can stand out and create awareness is by being violent, whether that's through bullying or... There's so many real world parallels, like it's incredible. It's tough, like, yeah. And so she feels like the Jedi Order is no longer moral. It's not this good society anymore. It's crazy. It's incredible to think about it. You could write like a psychological thesis on this. It's crazy. 100%. There's a lot of things that happened to her that shouldn't have happened to a young teen woman in this era. But because she's a Jedi, because she's on the front lines, these things happen to her and she goes a different path and she comes to the dark side. 
And what's crazy, Amon, is the last time we see her in canon is she's locked up by the Jedi Order. She is on the dark side path at this point. She's wielded the red blades. She's fought Anakin. She's just straight up said in the council, like, this is wrong. This is what I'm against, all this stuff. They lock her up, and that's the last time we saw her. What's crazy is Dave said, we'll return to her in canon one day, and we still haven't seen what that is. So my hope is that she's the Inquisitor we see in the Ahsoka trailer. Same. We've talked about that, too. We've talked about what a tie to Ahsoka that'd be, right? And how powerful that'd be. Amazing. Best friends, estranged over the war. One chooses one path, one chooses another path. Meet back up again in their 40s. Incredible. So we'll see. Duel to the death, baby. But she's an incredible character. I know why AMG did her and Luminar this early on. They are crucial players in the Clone Wars. They're very important to our main Skywalker saga and our main, like, Soka threads and all this stuff, Anakin threads. So makes perfect sense they're here. But we got to talk about Barris in strategy today, Amon, and what she can do on the tabletop in Star Wars Shadowpoint. Absolutely. And so Barris is a four point cost secondary unit. She is one character. She has a stamina of eight and a durability of two. Pretty standard for a secondary character in Shadowpoint. Tags really quickly, Force User, Galactic Republic, Jedi, and Padawan. No Sith tag yet. Not yet. That's right. <laughs> so I'm going to preface before we talk into Barris by saying that I think a lot of people are sleeping on Barris. You and I have had this opinion for a while. I think it's an extension of our Ahsoka conversation because I want Ahsoka conversation to Padawan Ahsoka, which we've talked often on the show. We still haven't covered her in deep detail on the show yet, but... A secondary like this is very impactful, but very force hungry. And it's very similar to Padawan Ahsoka in that way. Yeah. I've just heard some people and read that people don't care for her. And I think that's a mistake. It's a mistake. Do not become disillusioned, you Jedi out there. That's right. So Barris, Ofi, Afi, Tomato, Tomato, Jedi Padawan, active ability. This is a good one, Jesse. It's our favorite. It's our favorite. Two force cost. Force push. Yes, please. Choose a character in this unit, an enemy character within three of that character. Push the chosen enemy character three away from the chosen allied character. Incredible. Absolutely. I'll tell you right now, I'm sorry, Emperor Kevin, I'm using the example from our league game, but Barris in our league game was just a tool to keep Darth Vader at bay. And that is a powerful tool with the Padawan. Yeah, it's a secondary pretty much outboxing vader and it's cool because force push is such an amazing displacement tool yep which is why it has this expensive tag saj has it it also costs two force for Asajj. it is an expensive tool but it is an incredible one and i'm a big fan of it we've dubbed it the best of the game on the show and i think we'll lean on that for a while until something changes our opinion rightfully so it costs two force okay i'm on we gotta move on another incredible force power Active ability called Force Speed, costs one power, costs one force. Each character in this unit may advance. So we've seen it on Maul, we've seen it on Ahsoka. Incredible, right? Like she's faster than Luminar, straight up. The Padawan is. Yeah, I think Barris is a really good combination of Ahsoka and Asajj, actually. The theme is right. She's very force hungry, but she utilizes that force very well if you allow her to. But she's very mobile and a free advance means that Barris can get anywhere where she wants to if she needs to move a lot. In keeping with her like adjacency with Asajj, Amon, she also has slip away, 
which is reactive ability, which Asajj has, was that in and out nature of fighting style. So when another allied Galactic Republic character targets an enemy character that is engaged with one or more characters in this unit with an attack, this unit, Barris, may use this ability. One character in this unit that is engaged with the target character may immediately reposition. If it does, it then gains a hunker. So the quick and dirty of this, Amon, is if Barris is in combat with an enemy, another Galactic Republic character comes in and attacks the same enemy Barris is in combat with, she can slip out fully with a full-on move and gain a free hunker. It's cost no force. Yeah, the free reposition through the advance is amazing, gains the hunker. I like it, man. It's good. It's one of those things that's going to take finesse and time to work out. That's something I've been working on because I've been playing a lot of Bears games, and I've only got this off a couple times. But man, when you do it, it feels really good. Like Luminar coming in attacking something, a clone shooting something, and she gets out. She repositions on the map. Maybe... Amon, what's crazy is you can use this ability to like think of you're on that midline and then you reposition out to a back objective on your opponent's side of the map closer to their deployment. And now you just score it on their turn or something sometimes or like between turns. It's nuts. It's great. It's what you want a Padawan to do, right? Like shoot around the battlefield and help out the rest of your team. That's right. And speaking of being a Padawan, Barris has an innate ability called Faithful Padawan. When an enemy character is engaged with a character in this unit and the character in another allied Jedi primary unit, characters in this unit and characters in that allied Jedi primary unit add two dice to melee attacks attacking that enemy character. So, in layman's terms, if Padawan Barris is in combat or engaged with an enemy and an allied Jedi primary unit is also engaged with that same unit, they both hit harder because they both can add two dice to their attacks. It just makes sense. Like it's they're working in tandem to fight the same enemy, right? They practice this in dueling training, right? They practice how they're going to approach this fight. Of course, they're just better, both of them. But this faithful Padawan continues. It does. After this unit makes a recover action, each other allied unit within three may remove one damage. Or one condition from itself. So this part is not contingent on you being Jedi primary unit. So keep that in mind. Correct. So this is Barris working with dark side. Quite frank, like you can recover with her, get beneficial recovers on your dark side users, right? Around her or not. The dark side thing for sure, maybe. But keep in mind that this incarnation of Barris is the loyal Jedi Padawan. It is, but... We might not ever see a dark side Barris, and I think this one still works awesome, as you said, I'm on like an Asajj squad or something, right? And this is one of the things that makes it work awesome, where it's like, very frequently, I think you're going to have Barris on a point, taking a point, attacking, and then maybe recovering. And that's just, it's what she wants to do, right? And you're getting more benefits out of a recover because you're just getting free recovers on allies. Yeah, that's fair. Like, the two dice thing is great. I love it as a Jedi player, but I don't know if that's like when you play Barris, I don't think you're thinking I'm going to get my Jedi more dice. I think you're thinking I'm going to play Barris the way she wants to play and the dicing is going to come up when engagements happen. Yeah, it's a nice to have, but certainly like your reason you're taking Barris is because force push for speed, really. Even slip away is just very circumstantial, right? She's a slightly better recovery unit, which is great, right? Yeah. Even then, like, I don't even care about that. It's more so the force push is for me, like, having access to it while not having to take a Saj in some list is amazing. 
Oh, 100%. I just think it's so cool that like she's like, oh, I'm exposed. I'm a Jedi that's exposed. That's horrible. I'm going to recover. And oh, what do you know? Asajj next to me heals the damage. She's inspiring. That's right. It's really good. Let's talk about her form three, Suresu. And this form is nuts. I love it. It's an incredible tree. So let's start with the basics here. So she's got no range attack profile. She's got four defense dice. A little low. On range? On range defense. Yeah. Not everybody can parry bolts flying at you. Not a Padawan. Yeah. They're learning. But she's got six attack dice on melee, five defense dice, a little bit better. And her expertise is very interesting. She retains the same themes that Luminara exudes and that the reposition, I think, is very important to their kit and their identity. So for duelist training, one expertise on defense is a block, two to three is a block and a reposition, four plus is two blocks and a reposition. Yeah, it's very similar to Luminara's defense on like Makashi. Yeah. Again, like these characters, these units are mobile when they're in combat. It's very interesting. Yeah, it's the Jedi way. It's like, get them doing stuff and they get all their triggers. But if they're not getting attacks off, they're not really getting their value. Speaking of attack value, lightsaber expertise here. One expertise gets you a crit. Solid. Love that. Two to four, crit and two hits. Five plus two crits and a hit. Luminara, of course, has like that focus defense, which is just super powerful defense, or the strategic defense on Makashi, which is like good defense with the jump. Barris is just like Makashi defense with repositions. So once again, she's leading to that slip away style. What if now you attack her and she moves again? Like she's just moving where she wants to defensively. And I think that's super cool. I do too. And very good call out. Now going to Barris's damage tree. Yeah. And preface while we're here, the most she can ever do on her tree is five spaces. Yep. Good call out. She's got two starting tiles. She can either start with a shove and a damage or a reposition and two damage. So again, we get that reposition. Again, these characters are all about like movement or displacement. So she can either move herself or move her opponent with a shove. Both of these starting tiles then go to the same second tile, which is another one shove, one damage. Now from there, you can either continue to go straight or go down. So if you choose to go straight, the third tile would be an expose and a damage, followed by a jump and two damage. If you chose the bottom path, it would be a shove and a damage, and then a shove and two damage. So think about this. If you decide to start with the shove and damage and you go downwards, you're getting four shoves and five damage. Incredible. Super incredible. Now, whichever path you end up choosing, they both culminate in a free active ability, which is awesome, which is why I truly believe you should not attempt to force push until after you attack, because you can get force push for free. And the last game I played, man, I got a good dice with Barris, and I was able to get two free force pushes. Oh my goodness. And it was amazing. Feels good, for sure. Especially if you focus with her, buff up that attack to seven. Just try to get that force push. I think it's viable. I was a big fan, man. I really like Barris's kit. Yeah, let's talk about the kit while we're here before we close out our playstyle summary. So you just mentioned multiple pushes. I mentioned multiple repositions and some jumps, some force pushes. She's got a lot of positioning abilities for herself and for the enemies. 
She really does. And that's why I think Barris is such a good character because she's able to win you points by herself. She's really good at taking out characters with steadfast because they ignore the first shove. But if you're throwing four shoves their way, it doesn't matter. Shove City. Yeah. We love Shove City on the show and she'll get you there. Like she's probably one of the most reliable forms of that at a secondary character. So in the very least in the game right now, she, that's her spot. Like as a secondary, like do you want to go to shove town and force push on top of that? Right. It's so good. Like, yeah, you can shove someone four times. But I mean, even if you shove someone four times and then you force push a Vader away, who's over here yeah. on my left, that's nuts. Like a Padawan just held a spot against two models. Yeah. She's very good at being able to control the board and affect enemy positioning. And again, Jesse, as you mentioned with the Luminara tree, you can start with the reposition too to make sure your angles are right on the shoves. So. I think Barris is very good when it comes to adding a little bit of control. I think she can hit above her weight class, not necessarily in terms of the damage output, but again, Jesse, as the example you gave, is she can really just outzone multiple units, at the very least, multiple characters. And it's pretty nice, man. For four points, she's doing a lot. No, 100%. I guess we'll get the obvious out of the way. She's pretty fragile. And that's obviously... When pairing her with Luminar, that's a little bit different because the heals, the recovers. But with all this responsibility and power of all this like control, she of course has like an average health pool and low defenses. And that's okay. That's the balance, right? Of her if you're repositioning her the right ways, playing her the right way, that's okay. She also doesn't want to be shot by their whole team. She's just gonna go down. Yeah, she's actually very similar in in terms of like how bow functions, eight and two, eight and two. Bo is four four on defense. Barris is four five. Bo obviously has the benefit of one to three expertise is two blocks. And protection on herself. Yep, if she's contesting the objective. You want her to be hunkered or you want her to be like she just she excels in like this melee combat Amon's talking about. She can one on one a lot of people, which is unusual, right? For a secondary. And it's very cool that she can go toe to toe with maybe a primary for some time. Like she will go down, but like if she ties them up for long enough, she's winning you the game, right? But if she shot a lot from range while being engaged with that primary, then she starts having problems, right? So I think it's a very cool play style. It's very Padawan, right? Like she's tenacious and I love that. I love that she can kind of hold her ground, but she will crumble to focus fire. She definitely will. That is the balance and that's the secondary characters. They're really impactful and they're really good, but you can take them out if you really want to. 100%. And she's probably one of the less tanky ones, at least from range, and that's okay. That's how the design's built around her. And I think she's frankly really incredible. I think she's always worth contending in your list, especially if you're playing Republic. I think you're asking yourself some pretty interesting questions right now as a Republic player. Like, am I playing Padawan Soaker or am I playing Padawan Barris? Or maybe both in my premier squad of four groups. And what does that look like? And I think that's very cool. And they bring pros and cons in their own ways. So Soaker's a little bit more of a Mm. team player. Barris is a little bit more of a solo on a side point, right? And that's cool. So it's like, what do you want? But we'll talk more about her in a minute. I'm on when we do our full box summary, when we close this out. And we're going to talk about real quick about the lore of these clone commandos and close out our strategy on the clone commandos as well. So the clone commandos were also known as the Republic commandos, and they served under the Galactic Republic, of course. 
They were just super elite clone troopers that were genetically modified super soldier clone troopers, right? So they served under this Grand Army of the Republic, and they were special operations groups. So they were extra genetic experimentation of Jango Fett's DNA. Think the Spartan program in the Halo universe. They're the blue team, the Master Chief's part of. Because leading into the Spartan theme even more, there were always squads of four, these clone commandos. Only a couple we see in the canon on screen, Delta Squad being one of the most notable and cool. But of course, there's other squads as well. And they were squads that got stuff done behind the scenes, which I think is super cool. They also talk about the clone commando squads, even in the prequels, through dialogue, right? which is very cool. Clone commandos, just think of them as the best of the clone army. <laughs> Pretty simple. They had the best armor, the best guns, the best gear, the best everything. Super interesting about their guns. Their guns could transform different weapons. So their normal DC-17 rifle could turn into like a sniper rifle, could turn into like a grenade launcher, could just be a regular rifle. It had changing parts depending on the battle they were in. They also had vibro blades hidden inside their gauntlets, which we saw on some of the Mandalorians, which of course, this is all Mandalorian based. Like I talked about the Rex episode, Rex wears the Mandalorian dress. The clone commandos wear the Mandalorian Katarn class armor. It's like a modification of that Mandalorian stuff. They had the big backpacks with gear inside them. They also had ascension cables, which helped them scale buildings, which we're going to see in gameplay in this game. Very helpful. And then on top of that, Amon, they also all had special training. Each clone in that squad had their expertise, explosives, ranged leadership, all the things. They got extra training and education in that. And yeah, they fulfilled all the special ops missions of the Republic. They'd frequently come in the back on battles on like the flank, get stuff done while the main army is approaching. And they're just all around awesome clones. It's pretty simple. <laughs> they just look cool too. They have the lit up visors, which I absolutely adore. And, uh, you know, special shout out to Delta Squad, which I really love from the Clone Commando game. They were, like I said, the Master Chief Blue Team. They were kind of like the super elite Clone Commando Squad of all Clone Commando Squads. They just, they got stuff done. They never failed their mission. And the last time we saw them, they were going to Kashyyyk to help out at the battle, which is very sad because we know after that, they probably got Order 66 invoked on them. And they're probably fighting some Wookiees after that. Yeah. Shout out to Delta Squad. That was a cool game back in the day. It was. Those guys rule. And of course, they're in Clone Wars. Yeah. Commanders are sick, though. They look the coolest. They got the coolest guns. You're like you said, they're the blue team, right? They look pretty sick. And not much else to say about them, really. Jesse, I guess from a painting perspective, do you have any goals? Are you going to try to reenact Delta Squad? You know here? it. I've talked about it on the show a little bit. I've hinted at it on certain episodes. It is a bummer that there's only two. It is what it is in the play style of this game. So with the poses they've given us, I'm leaning on seven boss. I was thinking seven Fixer originally, but Fixer Fixer's the gear guy. He's got the giant backpack. He's got the comm system. I don't know if I have enough bits to do those mods, Mon. And I was thinking boss can be throwing the grenade. Sev's the guy crashed on the ground. Of course, Sev has the iconic blood pattern on his armor, right? Kind of blood battle armor. It's super cool, man. I love it. I was originally going to do Fixer and Boss, but I'm in a complete opposite with you. Or now I'm considering Sev just because the guy throwing the grenade, I just feel like he's so aggressive. Like that's such a Sev. The blood, man. It looks so good. Yeah. But I'm going to try to do it myself. I'll let you know how it goes. A good question before we move on to Mon here to the strategy. 
do you do the tactical wall or not on the mm. crouched guy? Mm. I don't know the answer to that. I was considering having the guy, the tactical wall being down on the ground, kind of rubble and him being up on it. Like it's a gantry. So for me, I've been really inspired by Sir John's bases and what he's really talked about. You should watch his YouTube video. In fact, we'll probably link it in the podcast episode. He's a good friend of mine and Jesse and I both appreciate and adore his work. He's got a cool YouTube video where he talks about how he made a Shatterpoint bases. And he talks about this really important concept about framing the miniature. So he uses this weird like Kyber-like crystal. Yep. They don't even have to be Kyber crystals. It's just crystalline structures or rocks that really help frame his miniatures. And so for me, what I wanted to do was I wanted to take that same framing concept, but use like, I think Star Wars for me is the perfect blend of like Wild West, uncharted, untapped, lush planets meets like hyper-industrialization. So what I wanted to do is I wanted to echo that jungle, natural, maybe wood forest feel, but I wanted to be clear signs of industrialization. And so I really like that wall. I'm going to use that wall for the crouching guy, but I'm going to try to find other pieces of terrain that are reminiscent of that wall to help frame my miniatures. like nature meeting the wall. Yeah, nature just meeting machine. Love it. Yeah. Big theme in Star Wars, right? It's the whole point of George doing the Gungan army versus the droid army in episode one. Nature versus machine. Like, yeah, 100%. All right, let's move on to the Republic clone commandos in Star Wars Shatterpoint strategy. And let's just get all pretense out of the way for you guys at home before we gush. Me and Amon love these guys. Yeah. I'm going to start by saying I think they're the best clone they might unit be. released yeah. this far. And I think a lot of people have concerns with their durability or rather their stamina. So durability of two, which is fine. The stamina is six. I've seen a lot of people on Facebook ask questions and in discords saying like, why are they six? They're supposed to be commandos. They're wearing heavy armor. They're supposed to be doing this. And like, does it seem like they're going to get wiped off the table very quickly? And the answer I think is no, because it's hard to quantify their commando armor, which is native ability. We'll just jump to that one first, because I think it's important. It offers them protection. So anytime they take damage, they reduce one of the damage by one. And that adds up a lot. 100%. Yeah. No, protection is... Massive. And we're going to cover that more in this card, but you're going to see a theme that them auto having protection on top of having brothers in arms, which all clones have, and benefiting from cover and hunker tokens like all clones like to do, it just adds to their kit. And continuing with what Amon said, they are a point cost of four. So they're that average cost. And they have a couple keywords of clone commando, clone trooper, Galactic Republic, and trooper. So they do also have that clone commando keyword, Amon which I'm super intrigued by because only so far we have these guys in Commander Cody that have that. I am very excited to see what comes with that. Let's move on to their card, Amon. And before we get into their tree, we're going to cover their abilities. So their first active ability is Defensive Maneuver. You might recognize it. It's a clone ability we've talked about thus far. It costs one force. Each character in this unit, so both of the models in this unit, may dash. If any characters dash, this unit gains Hunker. All clones have it. We love it. Great tried and true classic clone technique. And I think it works really well for the design of this particular set of clones as well, because protection and hunker, pretty solid. Yeah. Turns out. Now, they also have coordinated fire, which is a classic clone ability. It is a reactive ability. Unlike the ones we've seen in the past that grant a condition. This is just doing straight damage. Commandos mean business. They're here to neutralize their threats. When a character in another allied Galactic Republic unit makes an attack as part of a combat action, before dice are rolled, 
this unit may use this ability. If the target is within range 5 of a character in this unit, the target unit just suffers one damage. It's great. I mean, we we talked about the power of the other clones, like giving a condition you already have to give you a damage. This is just bypassing all that. I'm just a damage. It's pretty, it's pretty good. good. Yeah. Range five is a lot too. Keep in mind too, of course, this is any Galactic Republic character making an attack. So Jedi, clones, anybody like that thus far, they make an attack. This is just happening. And of course, this is just better when these guys are not wounded because it costs nothing. Exactly. Now, there is some debate that I've had internally where is it better to stack a condition or damage? And I think it depends. 100%. I think if you're running multiple clone teams, then you can pick and choose which one you want because you can only use one of them in the same window. But personally, I think the damage is interesting. I don't know if it's always the right choice because the strain from the 501st is pretty nice and the pinned from the 212th is pretty solid as well. So it's really just trying to figure out what is probably the best for your matchup, especially in premier format events. But when in doubt, damage is damage. Yeah, damage is damage. And like, obviously the highest peak of this is like a model's on like one stamina left, right? And you just declare an attack and they're gone. You don't have to worry about your tree at that moment, how well you do. Of course, if you get your tree on top of that and get some pushes and stuff, excellent. But the fact that you have this guarantee, these guys are just sniping from the back. I'm just going to auto take somebody out. Very cool. Very powerful. I think it's a good tool to remove supports, quite honestly, right when they're teed up. So I think it's really strong. But I'm on, we've got some new rules to talk about. And I'm going to mention their next ability right now. And we're going to get into that new rule. So Ascension Cables, it's an innate ability. It's their first innate ability. Characters in this unit have scale. So let's talk about scale real quick, Amon, because it's our first instance of this in the game. And it's very important to understand because it's complex. It kind of is, especially with the way these guys function. So first instance of scale officially on a card, scale. When this character would advance or dash, it may climb instead. Super simple. Now there's some rules that we need to take into account. A reposition allows you to advance out of combat, but you cannot climb out of combat. So scale won't work when it comes to repositions. However, what's important to note is that you can still climb Anytime a ability allows you to dash or advance. Or reposition if you're not in combat. Correct. Now, one thing that you probably notice is defensive maneuver, right? So each character in this unit may dash. If any characters dash, this unit gains a hunker token. So what this allows you to do is when you defensive maneuver, you can just climb instead. But important thing to note is that if at least one of them doesn't dash then you don't get the hunker. So you could scale and climb with both through a defensive maneuver, but then there's no hunker gain. Either way, that's super good. But your ideal move with these guys, if you do that, myriad of events Amon talked about is like one dashes maybe to an ingress point, very strong, and one climbs with the dash tool. And you still get the hunker, and they still both get on a higher elevation plane because one went up an ingress. That's great. But if you're on a pinch, who cares? This is like kind of a version of jump that Mandos have. Yeah, pretty much. It's like just the cables helping them just zip up Love off it. the board, you know? So it's pretty cool. But it's an important thing to note. And I really don't want anyone making that mistake because, you know, you need to learn the tactics and everything. That's why you're listening to us. Now, Amon, we did mention know. you and I had that back and forth with like reposition. So I will mention now, like, if these guys get a reposition and they're not in combat, 
you could just climb instead. So that's very powerful. Mm-hmm. So like they could do really cool stuff. And spoiler alert, they have reposition on their tree. So you could like just climb, move around the map. Very powerful. And continuing with their card and closing it out, you already talked about protection, how they have commando armor. They also have the innate ability brothers in arms, like all clones have. When this unit has one or more hunker tokens, characters in this unit have steadfast. So you see how this kind of all pairs in tandem together now because with their climbs, with their defensive maneuvers that can be climbs instead, with their repositions or moves that can be climbs instead, you really can just like climb to that higher level where the objective token is, get on that. Now you have steadfast. Now you have protection. And these guys really are maybe the ultimate clone point centers, right? Because they benefit the most from sitting on points of all the clones thus far. I like the fact that they're able to like hold one another, like, I got you, bro. <laughs> and then they've got this strong armor to to defend themselves. So I think the clone commandos, I mean, they look great on paper. The models look great too, right? So that really matters a lot to me and you. So yeah, well, they look great. They just look great. Let's move on to their tree, of course. Commando training. I think it's very exciting. Range five, six offensive dice, five defensive dice. And then on their melee side, five offense and four defense. So they struggle a little bit in melee, but that's the clone way. But they're really good at taking some pot shots. Six dice at range five is nothing to scoff at. No, not at all. I mean, they don't, it's weird because like they shoot as well as the 212th. They don't shoot as well as the 501st. Once again, the 501st are just champions, right? But once again, all the stats of these clones, like the normal dice stats are all pretty similar. But these guys have way better expertise. And that's the X factor, right? And so let's talk about that. So they have three different expertises, range, melee, and defensive. We'll start with the defense. Katarn class, commando armor, one expertise, one block, two expertise, two blocks, three plus a block and a reposition. So it's really interesting because you kind of almost want the two block more than anything. That's true. Yeah. Because you have to commit to this when you hit the three expertise per the rules. You can't mm-hmm. like say, no, I want the two instead. No, you got to go with the three plus because that's what you're But Here's what's cool, Amon, that reposition. That's a climb instead if you want it. Yeah, it's nice. But if I'm getting shot at, maybe I want the blocks. <laughs> sure. Sure. But also you're like, oh, guess what? I'm back on the high level and I'm scoring it. And you did not want that. So there's options. I like the design. Quick question for you. Katarn class. Is that like a nod to Kyle Katarn or? I don't know if it's a nod or not. Of course, the name's the same, but Kyle Katarn came first before the Katarn armor. Maybe it's named after him and his exploits. Who knows? knows? Yeah. All right. Let's go to the Vibroblade melee expertise here. One is a hit, two expertise, two hits, three is a crit and a hit. Best melee we've seen yet on a clone by far. Not even close. Which is not saying much. (laughs) I looked at this and I was like, I don't like this expertise. And then you said that and I was like, but that is true. They have nothing. I will say it's obviously a downgraded version of Rex's Melee because he's Rex. He's a superstar, but it's like Rex's Melee with less crits, but like the same results. So that's cool because the other clones are just like, there's just one hit on one expertise. Melee is not their game. So the fact that these guys actually have a bunch of stuff on their expertise on Melee, I find it very cool, Amon. And in fact, spoiler alert, but I mean, it's the same as their DC-17 blaster pistol expertise, the exact same results. So these guys are consistent. That's fair. I dig that. 
But I think the best part of this tree or this expertise is this DC-17M ICWS blaster right. rifle. What does ICWS stand? No idea. That's probably the something involving how it can change different parts. Very cool. Range. If you get one to two expertise, you get a crit. If you get three plus, you get two crits, which is pretty solid, actually. Yeah. Respectable. Now, if we go to their damage tree, there's only five tiles here. We're going to start with the first tile. It is two damage. These guys are here, and they mean business. They're here to pepper you, take you down. If you survive that initial onslaught, the second tile will pin you, which I like, very thematic. And then from here, you have two choices. You can either branch up top and deal an additional two damage, or you can go down low and you can strain and damage. Either way, you're culminating in the same fourth tile, which is two more damage, and then you end on the fifth tile with a reposition and two more damage. So in total, if you do the maximum damage here, it's eight damage, or you could do seven damage with a strain instead. It's respectable. It's a lot. It's pretty good, actually. I just had an epiphany I'm on. It's interchangeable weapon system. Because remember, once again, that can go sniper rifle, assault rifle, close range rifle, shotgun thing. Damn. Interchangeable weapon system. They mean business. I like that. (laughs) Have you ever seen Sev? He goes from like machine gun to like sniper rifle, and he means business the whole time. I love this. (laughs) These guys rule. They just rule. But yeah, I think A damage is like shocking on only five spaces, but these guys just doing it. Also, the reposition at the end, coup de gras, because it could be a climb, could just be a reposition down to the same level or lower level. We know in Shatterpoint, per the rules, you can just move wherever you want as long as it's the same level or lower, as long as it just works out on the map and the terrain. Very powerful. So I think these guys are kind of sneaky, where it's like, yeah, they're the best in melee. They're just consistent in like defense attack. But on top of that, they got some reposition tools that no other clones have that kind of get them where they need to be and maybe score you points aggressively up on your opponent's points and cause problems. With the protection and the steadfast in particular. Agreed. Well said, Jesse, and big fan of these guys. I think they can do a lot of damage. They can get around the board. They can zip around. And maybe you are tired of your clones relying too much on ingress points. The scale really helps, right? It is a stopgap between the regular clone movement and the jetpack from the Mandalorians, which I think is the intent of these commandos, right? And so they give you a little bit more maneuverability, a little bit more flexibility when it comes to the verticality of Shatterpoint. But again, you know, they can jump on a point and they can tank it. They can do some cool stuff with it, especially when paired with Luminara, who can help heal them right back up, or even Obi-Wan. Glad you mentioned that. I think they really do mean business with Obi-Wan and like maybe Rex. You just like fully lean into like the support of enabling them, giving them movement and hunkers with Rex and Obi-Wan both is massive and then not losing their hunkers. And of course they're already pretty formidable in melee compared to other clones, just buffing that up more and just leaning into their strengths is pretty powerful. But of course the other side of that, like you said, Amon is like Luminara, like, do you want to live on that razor's edge of them being close to like maybe wound and then she heals them up or bears comes in, gives them support. Yeah. I think it's super cool. I think these guys are here to stay for a while in the game. I agree. And I think they, pair really well with Cody too. I know that people are down on Cody. Some people say he's like arguably the least powerful secondary, but he's got that clone commando keyword, that tag. And so I just wonder what it means for this clone commander synergy in the future, because if there is a primary maybe that 
synergizes with clone commandos. Who knows? Just speculation here. Oh, sure. Don't sleep on Cody's best feature, which is his rerolls. I sat on the show and I've learned it more and more. The guy hits like a truck from range. He's kind of like Gar in that way, but also more importantly, rerolling failures on all your clones in his bubble just gives you massive consistency. That's what he's I here like for. It. Rex is like, Rex is the guy in the battle. He's pushing your troops up. He's getting in the fight. Cody's at the distance and he's just getting over in the bubble and making everybody shoot better. And which one do you need for your list? Ask yourself that question. Yeah. And if you don't need either, then, you know, that's play dark side. But <laughs> I would say that's Barris or Padawan Snips territory, maybe. That's right. But I think he makes the commandos more reliable yeah. too, right? Like they only have five spots they can get through. You can really bump that up with maybe some expertise triggers through those rerolls. It's exciting. So overall, commandos, I think, are the best clone supporting unit. That's our hot take. I think we both agree on that. The reason being is because they're tougher than they look. They can ignore that first shove, which makes them sticky on points, and they can provide a lot of extra damage, not only through their damage tree, but through that coordinated fire. 100%. And like as this game grows, we've talked about every show, I'll keep saying it, but as this game grows, the terrain gets better in TTS and in person. These guys, by ability to skyrockets, right? Because there's more terrain, there's more levels, as Amon would say, on the map. And these guys just get better, just like Mandos. It's like these guys are kind of midpoint between clones and Mandos. And more terrain is better for this game. But I mean, these guys in particular, they really can scale that terrain and do what they want with it, with all these repositions and climbs and stuff like that. So I think they're just going to get better as the game goes on. 100%. And I think the same goes for this box. The box is pretty impressive in terms of like what the characters can do, I think. Very unique characters in this box. You have a healer Jedi as your primary that isn't necessarily going to be doing a lot offensively, but helps augment your team and perform in ways in which, whether the battle is in your favor, in terms of wounds or against Mm. you, there's still something that you can do, not only with how you're reacting, but then also things you can do with your order deck. That full recovery is great. Barris having a secondary with so much force potential is incredible. And that force push, I think, is so nice. And then the commandos, right? The scale, the protection, the steadfast. And one thing that I think is really cool about this plans and preparation box is that all the characters have this similar theme of repositioning. Great point. They all can reposition multiple times. While they may look slow, when things are falling in their favor and they're hitting their triggers, they can actually be quite mobile and take your opponent unawares in terms of their sheer mobility. And don't forget about the power of the flow of the force too, where it's like the clone commandos are dashing with flow of the force. Guess what they're doing with those dashes? They're climbing, right? So like there's a lot of mobility that these characters have, though none of them have access to jump. They have other things that can kind of get them around the map. And I think this team really excels with ingress points, right? Because they got a lot of like dashes, repositions, things like that. If you're very hyper aware of your ingress points on the map, you're really going to excel with this team and outposition your opponent because you're like, okay, I reposition Barris over there to the right. I'm now an ingress point. Now I'm a level higher. Now I'm scoring the point. And it wasn't before or things like that. Or maybe the clone commanders are just using scale all the time because I'm using them well. Or even Luminara, like we said, her sprint's her lowest power level feature. But if you're using her sprint well and getting her around the map and also using flow of the force to get her some sprints, she's sticking around and she's getting where she needs to be and being that sticky model she wants to be on points. Also, too, Amon, I think it's obvious, but should be said, between Luminara and Barris, both being really good at like recovery, 
through their trees and of course bears it down on our tree, but she has that cool faithful Padawan recovery bonus. I think these clone commandos are just sticking around longer. And that's a feature of just, if you want to play this box, just play the box as it is and enjoy it. Completely agree. I think there's a lot of synergies to be had here. There's a lot of enjoyment, but I also think outside of the box, there's a lot of cross synergies, right? Like Barris works really well with any Jedi primary character. The commandos work great with all the other Galactic Republic clone synergies <laughs> out there. And then Luminara works great with everyone. It's just a win, right? This box is just a win. And if you're considering it, maybe this helps you decide if whether or not you want it for your squads, but we're a big fan here. So we hope you enjoyed this episode where we dove into these boxes and give you more enjoyment out of the strategy and lore of these boxes. And you know, I'm on, I think this is a unique opportunity for us, especially on the lore side of things. I was really excited about this episode in particular because we're starting to delve into characters that are less prominent in the films in particular. And that matters a lot to me because I want you guys to enjoy these characters on the board. Maybe you got some history today about the Mary Allen people, Barris Luminar in particular, and maybe some clone commando action, which once again, none of these characters are featured heavily in the movies. So I, I hope this accentuates your games and this evergreen content. 100%. And with that, I think that's going to do it for this episode. Bit of a lengthy one, but I think it's because we really enjoyed the lore talk for Barris in particular, but I think also with the education that Jesse provided with the history of Luminar and Barris's people and their culture. And then, of course, we just like to vamp about Chatterpoint <laughs> in general. So we had a good time. Yeah, I'm on. We got to give credit where credit is due. This is like our deepest Republic episode yet because it's layers of Republic, right? We've just talked about a lot of Republic now. and. The discussions are just going to form through these things like, what could we build on the next Republic episode? And it's just going to keep happening. And it's good problems, I think. 100%. I think that's going to do it. Hello There is supported by our wonderful patrons. You can choose to become a Hello There patron by going to patreon.com slash hello there cast. Again, we'd like to thank all of our patrons. Of course, we didn't mention the top of the show, but I will mention now the Hello There League is in full form. It's about to end the preseason league. We're about to start the next league, season one in full force. That's the full-on league. So if you're interested in being part of the Discord and maybe joining our Hello There TTS League, which is a growing league where we all learn the game together and learn squads together and just have fun games and get to know the members of the community, definitely jump on the Patreon and get in that next league, which will start within the next week or two, which is very exciting, laying the groundwork for the signups for that league and stuff I'm on. So I'm really excited about that. Because this preseason is almost done. And also, one last thing that we didn't mention at the top of the episode is we're doing a Star Wars Shatterpoint corset giveaway, and anyone can enter. All you have to do is click the link below in our description and follow us on any of our social medias, and that will get you a ticket. And we're going to be doing that drawing very soon. Click on that link. It helps us a lot. And the more places you follow us on social media, the more entries you get. So it really means a lot to us. And those places are pretty easy to find. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitch, all at the same place, at HelloTheirCast. You can always email us at HelloTheirCast at gmail.com. Leave us reviews on your podcast platform of choice. It really helps us out. Spotify and Apple people, you've been showing up, and it means a lot to us. You've been leaving reviews. Keep it up. If you can't support the show physically via Patreon, one of the best ways you can support us is by subbing on your podcast platform of choice and leaving us a five-star review on your podcast platform that suits you. 100%. We'd also like to give our thanks to Low Fuel for our show's music. We really appreciate it. And then, of course, I just want to give another shout out to our two new partnerships, Imperial Terrain and Mr. Laser. Of course, you can get a discount on Imperial Terrain or 
Mr. Laser with the code hello there five and check out. Of course, you can find me and I'm on a couple places online. You can find me, Jesse, on Twitter, Instagram, Longshanks, and Discord, all the same place, at Jesse Aiken. And check out my show, Fury's Finest, everything about Marvel Christ Protocol and the Marvel Universe. Very exciting time for MCP coming up. And of course, Lone Star Open's coming up, and we're going to be talking about that on the very show, as we will be talking about on this show. Hello there, cast. Mon, where can everyone find you? You can follow me, Iman, on all social media at a man who games. So it's a little play on words there, but a man who games and on Longshanks, just Iman. As I mentioned, and as you mentioned on that last episode, pretty much the only Iman in the hobby. I have defeated all the other Imans in single combat, and that's how I was able to bleed my saber crystal into that dark red with the tears of the other Imans. Poor Imans uh, out there. Yeah, there can only be one. It is what it is. It is what it is. Wargaming is very competitive, so. It can be, especially for Darksiders. Speaking of the dark side, I do a podcast about Warhammer Underworlds called Path to Glory, where we talk about competitive gaming, player development, and community growth. You can listen to me there as well. And yeah, that's how you can find me. I'm on. The only one. I'm on this very enjoyable episode. Like you said, it's a little bit longer, but you know, we had a lot of good takeaways from this episode and it's all good stuff. We hope you guys have enjoyed this episode. We hope you guys have enjoyed the flow of the force and plans and preparations. And maybe some dark side players out there are slotting bears on their lists right now and painting her saber red. And we highly encourage that as well. 100%. But until next time, may the force be with you.